Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Or better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in northwest San Antonio. Glad to have you this morning. This morning we'll be reading out of John chapter 15, 1 through 17. If you would please rise for the reading of the word. It says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be fulfilled. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servants do not know what his master is doing. But I have called your, you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You, do, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask, the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. The Lord bless the reading of his word. At this time, if our kids would go out with Miss Sharon, uh, Mr. Tony's going to take you guys over to Children's Church. Everybody else, please be seated. Dear Lord, God, I ask that you would be with me this morning. God, that you would empower me to be able to deliver your word to your people. Lord, as always, you know all of the places that I lack. You know all of the, all of the problems that I have and all of the mistakes that I make. And yet, Lord, it glorifies you, brings you honor to use a broken tool to do your will. So, Lord, I ask you this morning to use me, a broken tool, 
to bring your word and that it might change the lives of the people that hear it. Lord, I ask these things in the strong name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Um, well, as many of you guys have known, um, I have been having some health issues lately. Um, uh, we're a small church, so pretty much everybody knows that I've been having health issues lately. Um, one of the uh, interesting things about this is how deep and intimate aspects of my health have become a common topic for people to raise with me uh, as we walk along. Somebody will come up to me and ask me about some intimate element of my health, and then we'll have a long conversation about uh, things that people generally don't talk about with their friends, but that's okay. Um, that's good. Uh, as many of you guys know, I've been kind of dealing, when I turned 42, which shouldn't be that old, but makes me feel old, uh, and I've been dealing with kind of these reoccurring issues that have come up, um, and it has really kind of affected uh, my life, uh, because I've had to face some, um, some uh, mortality things, right? I've never really had any kind of major illnesses or major problems. Um, I've had, you know, chest colds and stuff like that, but in the space of a year, I broke my arm, got COVID, and now I've got probably gallbladder issues. So that's fantastic. It's been a good week for me, right? Good month for me. Um, and so as I, uh, as I go through this, um, you know, I'm reminded over and over again uh, that I have to trust in God, right? I have to abide in Christ. Uh, over and over again, people will ask me, well, how are you doing today, Pastor? How are you doing? Usually followed by some intimate and inappropriate question about, you know, my health down here. And, uh, and I'll be like, well, I'm, I'm making it. I'm making it. And, and that's honest. But, but I think that as we look at this, in Christ, we are called to do more than just make it, right? The, the Bible doesn't say that God is, a, is just kind of a making it spirit. He says that Christ, that, that Christ is a life-giving spirit, right? That, that we're supposed to have, that we're supposed to, we don't, we don't taste and see that the Lord is just kind of okay. It's not like, hey, taste and see that the Lord is moderately not terrible, right? It's taste and see that the Lord is good. And that his mercy endures forever, right? Um, and, and so, you know, as we, as we come into this portion of John, my hope this morning for myself and for all of you is that we begin to gain some of the knowledge that will allow us not to just make it, not, not to just kind of survive in the world that we live in, but to thrive, right? We, we don't want to just survive. We want to live in victory. We want to live in the presence of the living God who empowers us. We want to live in joy. And that joy to overwhelm us. This morning, we're going to be reading from the Gospel of John. And we're in what is called the Farewell Discourse. So if you've been with us for a while, uh, you know we've been going through the Gospel of John now for 12 years. Now that's not true, but it feels like 12 years. Uh, we've been going through it for almost a year now. And... Uh, and one of the, we finally reached uh, this, the end part of John. And, and what we need to realize is the entire second half of the Gospel of John is devoted to like two days. And, and probably four chapters is just him having a conversation with his disciples at the Last Supper. So he's just finished the Last Supper. Last week, 
uh, the last thing that we read said, and Jesus got up and his disciples went out with him. So the scene that we have this morning is that Jesus, it's nighttime, it's on the night that he's about to be betrayed, and they're kind of walking down the road, they've left dinner, and they're walking into this kind of wooded hillside area called the Garden of Gethsemane. This is where Jesus is going to wrestle in prayer, where he's ultimately going to be betrayed. But as he walks with his disciples, he's talking with them. Right? And you get the feeling that Jesus is really trying to pack in as much teaching as he can before everything starts picking up speed. This is his last opportunity to do in-depth training with them, to teach them and to help them understand what life is going to be like when he's gone. And so as he walks along in this kind of garden area, you have this image of him walking along through these, these vineyards, and there's probably... There's probably vines there, and there's, there's grapes that are hanging. And as Jesus so often did, he used the things that they saw to paint a picture of what he wanted to get across to them. And so he declares, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Now, this is the final I am statement that Jesus is going to make. Throughout the Gospel of John, he has been making these ego emi, I am statements. And he does this for, for a really important reason. I am is the way that God discloses himself to Moses. If you guys remember, Moses is standing before the burning bush, right? Whenever I hear about it, I, I always think of that great scene from, uh, from, the, uh, uh, from the, the Ten Commandments. I'm not sure if that's how it looked, but I always think of Moses looking like, uh, uh, was it Charlton Heston? That's just for the rest of my life. That's what I'm going to see. So he's there, and, and, and God, you know, he's like, well, who am I supposed to say sent me to the people of Israel? And, and God says, I am. Not I am Bob, or I am Yahweh, or I am Jehovah. He just says, I am. Tell them that I am sent you. And, and, and God really is the only one who can make that statement and it not be grammatically incorrect. Because he is. He is not something else. He is existence. He is the unity of perfections and the totality of all creation. Because he is outside of creation. And so as Jesus attempts to get across to a stiff-necked and stubborn people who he is, he makes these I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the light of the world. I am the true vine. But this last I am statement is a little bit different. See, normally, when he makes an I am statement, it is to link him to God. I am the bread of life. Well, I mean, if you tell a, a first century Jew, I am, the, I am the bread of life, you are basically saying, I'm God. Okay? There is, there's no daylight between me and God. We're the same. Except in this I am statement, there's two people. He is the true vine, and God is the vine dresser. Now, it's no coincidence that this happens after last week's passage, which was just packed full of all of this Trinitarian information about how God is the Father, and God is the Son, and God is the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is not God the Father, and God the Father is not God the Son, and God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit. They are three in one in a mystical trinity. And again, like we said, if you don't understand that, that's cool, neither do I, but it just is. And so 
Now Jesus is kind of laying out one of these nuanced differences. He says, I am the true vine. Because you see, that means something more to his disciples and to the people in Israel than it would mean to us. To us, it might be just kind of a good example. Like, oh yeah, vine and branches. Okay, that, that's kind of cool. Like grapes, and I like grapes. And Yeah, yeah, that, that'll work. No. Israel identified themselves as the vine. Okay, that is the way that Israel is often referred to in the Old Testament. That was their identity. They looked at the vine and the grapes, the vine and the fruit, as like their national symbol. If you pull up coins, if you find coins from this time, they're going to have on the back a vine with grapes because that's the symbol of Israel. Israel is God's vineyard. So much so that when Herod the Great rebuilt the temple, what, one of the things that he put kind of on the, on the front over the doors was this massive kind of golden sculpture of a vine with grapes on it. And it was like super ornate. It was, it was the, the clusters of grapes were as tall as a man. It's all made out of gold because, hey, gold is pretty good. And they would hang it on the wall there. So when you would walk into the temple, you'd be like, yes, we are God's vineyard. They saw the vine and the grapes, kind of the way we would see the red, white, and blue, or an eagle or something like that, it would stand for, you see an eagle, right? It's like, oh, that's America. You see like a big bear that's like, that's Russia. I, I don't know, England's like a bulldog, and I don't know what the rest, I don't know what France is, but it's cool. They're cool too. And, and so when he says, I am the true vine, what he's saying is, I am the true vine. Israel. I am the real Israel because here's the reality. Yes, every time God talks about Israel in the Old Testament, a lot of the times he's talking about a vine and he's talking about fruit, but it's always negative. Nobody ever thinks about this, right? They didn't think about it at the time. Like, oh yeah, we're totally the vine and the, and the fruit, except every time in the Old Testament, God says, you're like a vine with fruit. He's saying, you don't bear fruit. He's like, y'all are like a vineyard that I've planted that isn't working out. You know, I've put all this effort into you, and you're not doing anything. You know, I, I built like a wall around you, and I've cultivated it, and I've poured water on it, and I've tended you, and done all this stuff. And you know what you gave me? Nothing. Now, you guys are all probably way better at, at, uh, at planting than I am. My wife has a degree in agriculture, but I can't grow stuff, okay, at all. When we lived in Houston, I had a peach tree, and I was really excited about it because I like peaches. So I went out, we had a big fruit tree sale, we went down, I bought a fruit tree, and I was like, this is going to be my peach tree, and it's going to be awesome. It's a red barren peach tree. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It has these beautiful triple blossom uh, flowers, and then you get these amazing freestone peaches that come off of it, a except not me. <laughs> what I got was nothing <laughs> for years. And I like tended it, I fertilized it, and I like, I did this thing where you put like rebar around the outside so the iron gets in there and the tree gets strong. And, and, and then like uh, I, I would put like fertilizer on it and it got bigger and bigger. It was like this huge tree in my backyard. I was like, how can this huge tree not give me any fruit at all? Like no fruit. And then somebody was like, well, it's not giving you fruit because you haven't pruned it. I was like, that's stupid. 
I have to cut the tree for it to make fruit? That doesn't exist. That's not a real thing. The bigger the tree is, the bigger the fruit should be. I'm from America. That's how we think. I know how this works. A little bit of fertilizer is good for the tree, then a lot of fertilizer is going to be really good for the tree. I mean, like, more like double, right? And I had this great big tree that gave me nothing. And the guy was like, listen, you need to cut it back, like, by 40%. I was like, you are stupid. I'm not cutting my tree back by 40%. It took me five years to get it this big. He's like, okay, you do whatever you want to, but you're not going to get anything. And so I, I, one spring, I like cut it back. And you know the crazy thing was? That stupid tree started making fruit. <laughs> like, what kind of a crazy backward tree is that? I'm going to cut off 40% of you and you're going to start making fruit at that point. Because that's really how it works, right? People that have raised fruit trees and vines know that you have to cut back, you have to prune the tree in order to get rid of like the existing uh, wood and then like the new wood comes out. That's where all the fruit comes from. Fruit comes from the new wood, okay? Didn't know that. Jesus does. And so do the Jews, right? And so he lays out that in the kingdom of God, this vine that is God's people has to be pruned. Over and over again in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, we have this image of branches that don't bear fruit get cut off, bound up and thrown into the fire. See, Jesus is the true vine, the real Israel, and that's important for us to understand. It's important because sometimes we can get the wrong idea about who Israel actually is. See, Jesus is the true Israel, and those who are part of his body are the citizens of the true Israel. The Jewish state may at some point become part of the new Israel, but it is not. It is not Israel. The church is Israel. Christ is Israel. And while Israel may at some point become engrafted into the true Israel, America is not Israel. Let me say that again. America is not Israel. America is not God's chosen people. Now listen to me. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to have good and godly laws. Okay? It doesn't mean that God doesn't bless some nations and punish other nations. He does. We see that throughout the Old Testament, right? We see promises of that in the prophecies, right? Evil nations are going to get punished. Good nations get blessed. But we have to be very careful when we begin to use Old Testament language about the United States as if it was God's chosen nation when it is just a nation. Hey, God uses lots of nations for his glory. He used Babylon for his glory. He used Persia for his glory. He used Nineveh for his glory. He used the Roman Empire for his glory. He used the Holy Roman Empire for his glory. He uses nations for his glory. And nations can have good and godly people in them. But there is only one truly God-centered nation, and that is the nation of Israel the true vine, which is Christ. See, Jesus is the true vine, and this 
identity has implications for his disciples. And so he goes on to explain what that identity as the true vine means for the disciples. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear fruit more. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you and the branch, because the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And so we, we've looked at this kind of principle where less is not more, or I'm sorry, more is not always more when we're planting and, and that the plant has to be pruned and it has to be cut back in order for it to give fruit. But we need to understand how this metaphor begins to apply in the Christian life. Because Jesus is very clear. As members of the, the true vine, we're expected to bear fruit. So what allows us to bear fruit? Well, he says that we have to abide in him. Now, what on earth does that mean? It's something that Jesus has said over and over again, abide in me. You must abide in me. The word that he uses is the word meno in Greek, and it means to remain or to live or to dwell in a particular place. So he's saying you need to live in me. You need to dwell in me. But still, we're like, well, okay, what does that mean? Like, we know that the Holy Spirit's going to live in us, but how can I dwell in somebody who's living in me? That doesn't, like, it's like a circle. It's like when you do one of those Excel tables and it tells you you have a circular argument and it doesn't work. Like, how does that work? How do we live in somebody who's living in us? Well, just as the Father abides in Jesus and the Holy Spirit will abide in them, so he commands us that we need to abide in the vine. The, the branch is not a self-contained entity. It doesn't exist on its own. It has to be connected to the rest of the plant or it dies. We have this tree in our backyard that we are slowly killing because we have a tire swing on it. Okay, And so when being the genius that I am, when I came there, I hung this tire swing up there. I was like, you know, again, if a little rope is good... Lots of rope is better. So I'm not great at like tying knots. What I do is just like wrap the rope around it all these times and I have like chain hung off and we got our tire swing. And it's really cool. It's super sturdy. And it's been there for like five years now. And if you look at the branch, it's just, it looks like one of those guys who does nothing but like, like arm days all day. You know, he, like every time he goes to the gym, he just works out like his upper body, but he never works his legs. And he's got like the little chicken legs with these great big Popeye arms. That's what that branch looks like. It has this great big branch coming out, and it does this boop, and it has this little bitty branch that comes out on the other side. And it's all diseased and nasty looking. Because that branch is not connected to the tree. It's not getting the nutrients that it needs to be able to survive. Right? When we abide in Christ, we're connected to Christ, and he begins to empower us. See, Jesus is the true vine and the, the real Israel and membership in the nation is not based on race or birth, right? It's not based on where you live or who your parents were. It's based on how connected you are to Christ. It's, it's based on your relationship with him. And guys, that's incredibly important. It's incredibly important that we understand that if we are going to grow in God's kingdom, we have to be connected with Christ, See, abiding in Christ means that we depend on his grace. 
right? That we understand that, that we're not here because we did something good or that we said the right prayer at the right time or we did the right thing or we walked down the right aisle. We are here because of no, no good of our own, Christ saved us, right? We are here because of God's grace, we abide in Christ when we obey his commands and follow his examples, right? Over and over again throughout this whole passage. What has he said? If you love me, keep my commands. If you love me, do what I tell you. If you love me, you will do the things that I tell you to do. Obedience is the sign that we're abiding in Christ. When we abide in Christ, we rest in his love. That's the other thing that he says, like, rest in my love, rest in my love, rest in my love, rest in my love. Finally, we abide in Christ when we submit to his discipline. Right? If Christ is divine and God is divine dresser, sometimes he's going to have to cut us down. Sometimes he's going to have to trim us. Sometimes he's going to have to take parts of us off to make us truly fruitful. No discipline is pleasant at the time. I hate running. You know that. Every now and then I'll submit to going running with my wife. And it's good for me, but I've never enjoyed it. I don't like waking up early to do my quiet time. Often I don't. It's not pleasant. I don't like having my flaws shown to me. My faults things that I don't like about myself. And yet, if we abide in Christ, we submit to the discipline that he brings to us. Because here's the reality. Bearing fruit is not an optional part of the Christian life. It's not something that just is kind of nice. Like, hey, if you, you came to Jesus and now, like, hey, if you want to level up, if you want to be like a next level Christian, you want to move up to that, to that 200 level, Right? Then, then you can like you can start bearing fruit. That, that's a worldly way of dealing with things. There's lots of religions out there where you have like an entry level, and then like you you pay some money and you get like a special test, and they put the electrodes on you, and then you know Tom Cruise comes out and gives you a pep talk, and then you level up to that next level. Okay, right? That that's not how it works. Like you don't like do super good, and then Billy Graham comes to you in like a hologram. It's like excellent, well done. You get to move. That's not how it works. There is no next level Christianity. There's those who bear fruit and those who are not Christians. Oh, yeah, did he just say that? Yeah, I did. Because that's what Jesus said. Don't get mad at me. You get mad at Jesus. Don't get mad at me. I'm just a messenger. Don't be kicking the mailman. Or what does he say? I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me. And I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you do abide in me and my word abides in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is my father. By this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Those who do not bear fruit do not abide in Christ and they will be cut off, gathered up, and thrown into the fire. This is a warning that has been given long and often in the life of Israel. God has lavished special care on Israel and he expects a return on his investment. 
In short, he has claimed Israel as his own to reflect his glory. That's the point of Israel. They are his getolah, his, his prized possession, the apple of his eye, the most important thing in his collection, and they exist to bring him glory. And when they don't bring him glory, you know what he does? He glorifies himself by crushing them in judgment. You go get glory one way or the other. Right, over and over, I'm reading through the Bible, I'm reading through Ezekiel right now, and it's like, and this horrible thing happened that you will know that I am God. Right? Because that's God. You're going to know who he is. You're either going to know who he is through his blessing, or you're going to know who he is through your punishment. But you're going to know who he is. He is the one who speaks from the hurricane and says, who are you, old man, to... Question me. Gird yourself. Put your big boy pants off and let's have a conversation. That's what he tells Job. He has claimed Israel. And Jesus' disciples are no different. That relationship is the same. He's saying, you are part of the vine, but you need to bear good fruit. If you abide in the vine, you will bear good fruit. I mean, look at that promise that he makes. If you remain in me... Right? If you abide in me and my word remains in you, then you can ask whatever you want. It will be given to you. This is from a man who calmed the storm. A man who's raised the dead and healed the sick. He's fed thousands of people. He's like, if you ask in my name, I'm going to do it for you. Now hear me. That doesn't mean that if I pray hard enough and want it bad enough and believe enough that God's going to give me a jet. Yeah, we laugh. There's guys out there that are preaching that. That's not what I'm saying here. That if we believe hard enough and we want it bad enough that God will come in here and give me a nice new chapel with a, one of those polished concrete floors that would be amazing, right? That would be so cool. All the cool pastors have those. Nice polished floor. Woo! It would be awesome. When I spill my coffee, we can mop it up. You don't have to pretend like I didn't do it. Not that I've ever done that. I totally have never done that. Or any of the rest of y'all. Yeah. No. He's saying, if you abide in me and my word remains in you, you will know the things that I want you to pray for and you will pray for them. And guess what? If you ask for the things that God wants to give to you, guess what he's going to do? He's going to give them to you. Because our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and his will is never thwarted. See, those who bear fruit do so because they abide in Christ. Those who abide in him will be empowered for greater service in the kingdom. We are all called to bear fruit, brothers and sisters, and the quality of our fruit as Christians is directly connected to the quality of our relationship with Christ. This is important for a couple of reasons. First, because, hear me now, proximity to Jesus does not ensure fruitfulness. Okay? Proximity to Jesus does not guarantee fruitfulness. Just because you are here in the building doesn't mean that you're going to be fruitful. Right? Just because when somebody says, "Are you a what church you go? I'm a Christian." No, no, that doesn't mean that you're going to bear fruit. Right? Just because you hang out with other Christians, it doesn't mean you're going to bear fruit. Just because your mom and dad were Christians, it doesn't mean you're going to bear fruit. Just because you go to the church in town doesn't mean you're going to bear fruit. Proximity to Jesus does not mean that you're going to bear fruit. 
The Gospels and the New Testament are full of stories of people who thought that they were saved. People who thought that they had a relationship with Christ. People who everybody else thought had a relationship with Christ. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, right? I mean, he goes everywhere with Jesus. He goes out and casts out demons in his name, right? And yet Satan entered him, and he turned on Jesus. Right now, while Jesus is saying this, Judas is over at the temple getting the troops together to go and stab Jesus in the back. He was proximate to Jesus, but he did not abide in Jesus. Or Ananias and Sapphira, who were part of the early church. Or Simon the magician, who came and was baptized and then turned out to be one of the biggest enemies of the early church. Think of the Pharisees, who were near Jesus. They spoke the words, but their hearts didn't change. They did not abide in Christ. The other reason this is important is that we cannot bear authentic fruit outside of a relationship with Christ. I, I, I don't care how many good works you do. I, I don't care how many wells you dig. Right? I, I don't care how many homeless people you feed. How many churches you build. If you are not abiding in Christ, those are all counterfeit. Jesus had a word for people who pretended to bear fruit, but didn't. He called them hypocrites. Talked about the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees would stand out on the street corner, and they would pray loud and long and deep and spiritually rich prayers so that the people around them could see it. They would give a tithe of all that they had, even to their mint. Like, I will give you 10% of my mint. I have mint. I could bring it in here. I'll give you a tithe of all my sage. It is excellent. It's the only thing I can grow are plants that naturally grow in a desert. And I, <laughs> Rosemary and sage, guys. That's what I got growing in my garden. I'll give you a tithe of my sage and my rosemary. That you may season your pork well. And yet these men, these men were empty. These men who looked holy, who were ostentatious about giving alms, all of them were corrupt and empty and dead. He called them empty. They were like whitewashed tombs, beautiful buildings filled with corruption on the inside. They exhibited fruit, but it was false. So fruit is important. What should the disciples be looking for as a sign that they're abiding in him? Well, he begins to lay out what this looks like. Jesus anchors his discussion by abiding, about abiding in fruitfulness with some concrete things. The first thing that he says is that they're going to love him. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. The first fruit that we're going to see by being abiding and connected with Christ is love. Again, we're not earning Christ's love through obedience to his commandments. 
Christ already loved us. He loved us when we were enemies, when we were out doing all the dirty, nasty things that we did before we got saved, and sometimes after we got saved. He loved us. He looked down on me when I was in college, acting the fool, and was like, I love you, Andrew. I don't love the things you're doing, but I love you. He looked on Paul as Paul was dragging people out of the church, out of their houses and killing them and making them apostatize. And he was like, I love you, Paul. He looked down from the cross as the men who he was dying for abandoned him or stabbed him. And he said, I love you. While we were yet his enemies, he died for us. We don't earn his love through our obedience. But when we follow his commandments, we place our life and our actions within the greater overflow of his love. When we do what he tells us to do, we abide in his love. One of the things that I've kind of gone through as I've been going through my, uh, my, my little journey with, uh, with, with sickness is I started listening to this book that my daughter's listening to about William Carey, which is super annoying. It's a super annoying book, by the way. It's super annoying. Because, what, not William Carey, it's George Mueller. I'm so sorry, I apologize. It's, it's annoying because he's, like, he's always like, well, I'm just going to pray for this. And then God provides. And he's like, well, I don't have any plan. I'm going to quit my job. And I'm going to go over here and open up an orphanage for all these children. And I'm like, you can't do that. I'm like the bad guy in the story. <laughs> you ever been, read one of those books and you like identify with the bad guy? I find myself, ever since I was in the Marine Corps, I always, I always identify with the, with the Empire. Whenever we watch Star Wars, I'm like, yeah, you get those rebels. Get them. Tear them down, right? Now, I'm like the bad guy in the book. I'm like, you can't do that. You can't just start a ministry like that. And they're like, and then God brought food to the orphanage. And then there's thousands of children. I'm like, ah, oh, okay, yes. He abides in Christ. He relies on Christ. He lives in the love of Christ. And it changes him. And he does amazing things. See, when we trust him for our life and our breath, we dwell in the loving embrace of his provision. When we rely on him. When we listen to him and believe him that he says that he will care for us. When we forgive those who have hurt us, we live out the implications of his loving sacrifice for us. We repeat what he did for us. We get to see what it's like to be Christ. When we tell other people about him, we live in the story of love and sacrifice that is the gospel. Well, something else happens, though. See, abiding in Christ leads to joy and friendship with Christ. He tells them, these things I have spoken to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy may be full. You are my friends. If you do what I command, you no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. See, if they abide in him, they will be filled with his joy. And they are no longer servants of a master, but they're his friends. Paul was once one of Christ's greatest human enemies. He killed and destroyed with abandon. And yet later in his life, you know what he's going to say? He's going to say there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I wonder if we feel that way today. I wonder if we look at our lives and we say there's no condemnation in this man. For the longest time, I viewed Christ kind of like as, my, as, as, as I viewed my football coach. My football coach was mean to me a lot. 
I could tell he loved me, but he didn't like any of the things that I was doing, and so he would kick me a lot, right? That was back, you know, when you could actually abuse players and, you know, back in the good old days of football when you could, like, kick them and stuff, right? Or like a drill instructor who, you know, would lovingly, you know, punch you and do stuff to you because he loved you, right? There's, like, love there, you know? Like, he throws the footlocker down on you. It's because he loves you and wants you to be better, right? And that's how I viewed Christ. I was like, you know... I'm just, I got to do better because Jesus is mad at me. I'm going to do better. I'm going to do better, Jesus. I promise this time. Guess what? I never did better. And then I would feel bad. I'd be like, oh, Jesus doesn't. I'm so unworthy. I don't understand. What am I going to do? Wretched man that I am. That what I long to do, I cannot do. But that is not how Jesus sees us. That's not how God sees us. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, we have been made clean and fresh and pure. When when he took our sins from us, it wasn't a game. It's not a lie. It's not just kind of like some notional thing. He legit took our sin. Like the time I I, I created a garbage bag full of of hydrogen and and I blew windows all out through my block. That sin God took. That's a real thing. I did that. That's an actual thing. Okay? When I shot fireworks off in the backyard and everybody got mad in the neighborhood, and by fireworks, I mean it was, it was a, a, a pistol. But anyway, that's not neither here nor there. That sin he took. He took that sin. And every other sin that I've committed, they're gone. Right? When he, when he, in the Old Testament, right, in the Day of Atonement, they would take all the sins of Israel, write them on a note, tie them in a little box, put it around the, the scapegoat, and they'd send it out, and it would go as far as the east is from the west, because that's what happens to our sin. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Finally, he reminds them that abiding in Christ is the result of the sovereign will of God, and it should result in love for one another. He says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. And this is the crux of the entire passage. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. They didn't come to him. They weren't chosen by God. They were chosen by God before the beginning of time. They didn't find him. He found them. Nothing that has happened or will happen has anything to do with their own intrinsic worth. And guys, it's the same for y'all. You're not special. He wasn't like, oh, I can't live without Wes. Man, you know what I need? I need a Wes. Man, if I just had a Justin in the kingdom, then my collection would be complete. You're not a baseball card. Like, oh, man, I, I, he's a, Justin's a double rare. Like, he's like a beanie baby with a tag on it. You know, like, yeah, you just dated yourself, everybody who laughed. Y'all know what that is. You either heard the Weird Al Yankovic song or you actually collected beanie babies, and either one. That's not how Jesus works. For his own glory, before the beginning of time, he chose you. Not because of any intrinsic worth. He is using for his kingdom Some poor fishermen, a tax collector, a terrorist, and an assortment of rejects and misfits. Some of whom probably had a criminal background. 
And he selected these men to do his work, not because they brought anything to the table, but because each of these men is weak. And as Paul would later declare, in light of his own weakness, that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And he points this out to them that it, so that they will love each other. He says, none of you have anything to bring to the table. So love each other. Because you were all chosen. None of you is better than another. If the disciples abide in Jesus, then their lives will be marked by love for God and for love with each other. See, the disciples have been chosen to glorify God by bearing fruit through the abiding relationship that they have with Christ. And their relationship will be dominated with Christ for the rest of their lives. The power that he has promised will overcome them. It will empower them as they travel beyond Jerusalem, as they leave the boundaries of Israel, as they go into the Roman world and beyond, and it will change the face of the world that we live in. You are here today because these men did something impossible. And they did the impossible because they abided in Christ. Brothers and sisters, each of us, each of you, has been called to glorify God by bearing fruit through our abiding relationship with Christ. Each of you. And I, and I wonder... I wonder what would change in us if we understood that. If we understood that Christianity was not a religion, but that it was a relationship. See, religions are about organization and about structure and money and power. Right? They're about building buildings. They're about empowering organizational structure. And those are not bad things. Right? Organization is good. Through organization, we send missionaries. Through organization, we, in, we train our pastors. Through organization, we build buildings where God can be glorified. Right? But that's not the heart of what Christianity is. All of these things, like all good things, can be used to eclipse the true nature of our faith. Christianity, above anything else, is about a person's relationship with Jesus and how that relationship affects their relationship with everyone else. I want you to think for just a minute and ask yourself, what would it be like in this church? What would it be like in your own life if you focused on relationships instead of the building or our events or God help us the budget? What would it look like if we invested in our relationship with Christ above all things? What would that look like? What would happen if we changed our view of Christianity from a religion to a relationship? Well, let me tell you. If we truly saw Jesus as a person to know instead of a name to invoke, what would that look like? See, praying in the name of Jesus is, fine, is, is great, right? But sometimes I think we use it as our way to stick our thumb in the eye of the world. Sometimes we think it's enough to make some long and fancy statement and then baptize it with the name of Jesus. But I wonder what would change if we saw a prayer instead of as a list of things we want, but as a conversation about the things that we struggle with. What would that look like? 
What if instead of telling Jesus what we want, if we, if he, if we sought out what he wanted for us? What if we stopped asking Jesus to bless our vision for our life or our world or our family and we asked him to show us his vision for the life that he has called us to? What if we saw Christ as someone to work with instead of someone to work for? What would that look like? If instead of saying, I'm going to do all these cool things for you, Jesus, we said, what are you doing, Jesus, and how can I be part of it? Where, 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 where do I walk with you? Where do I walk alongside of you? What does that look like? What if we embrace Christ as our friend and not as some kind of brutal overlord who's always upset or disappointed with us? What if we embrace the reality that he has called us to friendship? What would happen if we embraced the reality of a man who literally came to die for us? Brothers and sisters, it would change everything about what we do. See, if we did those things, our lives would change and our priorities would change. The way that we view our world and our church would change. We would stop living, enduring, muddling through. We would start to really, truly abide in the love and the work and the mission of Christ. And then... There would be no limit to the amazing things that Christ would do through us. That's what real living looks like. Y'all pray with me. Oh Lord, God, I pray that each and every person in this room would learn to abide in you. God, that we would be overwhelmed by your presence. That we would begin to taste and see that you are good, not intellectually, but in our lives. God, that, that we would begin to live our lives completely and totally dependent on you. Lord, if there are people in this room today who do not know you, God, I ask that you would begin to move in their heart, that you would show them the lack and the emptiness and the brokenness God, that they would just desire above all things to abide in you. God, I, I just pray that we would be faithful to you and that you would let us see your glory today. Brothers and sisters, we're about to sing a song of invitation. This is a time of response in our church. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.